In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, yesterday was April 15th, tax day, or as my father Erwin Schiff used to say April Fool's Day, and my father thought it was April Fool's Day was because he believed that that was the day on which Americans basically voluntarily paid a tax that no law required them to pay and voluntarily filed a 1040 tax warrant uh, that no law required them to file. Of course, uh, my father ultimately um, went to jail and died in jail. Uh, because of uh, of those beliefs, uh, I have been paying my taxes, although now that I live in Puerto Rico, uh, it's not nearly as painful as it used to be when I used to live in Connecticut. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that uh, April 15th was not always tax day, a little bit of trivia. When the income tax first passed or reared its ugly head in 1913, although that's not the first time we had an income tax. We had an income tax during the Civil War and uh, the, you know, the, the North imposed it. And when the war ended, uh, the income tax went away. And so it came back again um, and uh, it was declared unconstitutional correctly by uh, the Supreme Court in the Pollock decision. Uh, but then they resurrected it with the 16th Amendment. And then following the 16th Amendment, 1913, the original tax day was March 1st. Now, why is that? Well, because the income tax is a tax on your income 
for an entire year. So we are now in 2019, right? We're paying our income taxes for 2018, but you don't know what your income is in 2018 until the year is over. I mean, you can have a lot of money that you may have earned early in the year. You can lose it all back on the last day of the year and end up with no income at all or end up at a loss. So the idea was if we're going to tax your income, then we have to wait till the end of the year. And then we have to give you some time to add up your income and figure out what you owe and then pay the tax. Because originally when the tax was imposed, nobody paid their income taxes until the following year. So if we were still following the income tax as originally passed, right? Uh, nobody would be sending any money in for 2018 until 2019. There was no withholding. There were no quarterly estimates. The withholding tax didn't come around until 1943. That was part of the victory tax, right? Some victory. We lost the Second World War because we got the withholding tax. In fact, we've lost every war we ever fought because every time we fight a war, you know, we get more taxes. I mean, in fact, they really jacked the income tax up. It started off, it was very low, just a few percent. The first big increase uh, was in the First World War. In fact, the First World War gave us the estate and the gift tax as well. So every time the government takes us to war, they clobber us with a tax, which nobody will be objecting to because they'll be unpatriotic when there's a war, right? The government never wants to waste the opportunity of a war. And so during wartime, it is able to impose new taxes uh, that under peacetime, it can never get away with. Like the war on terror, you know, George Bush uh, crammed through the Patriot Act, the most unpatriotic act in American history, that never would have been able to pass if we weren't having the war on terror uh, in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. But getting back to uh, the income tax, so the withholding tax where people had money taken right out of their pay, that didn't start until 1943. And of course, if it wasn't for the withholding tax, I mean, come on, does anybody believe if Nobody had to pay their income tax until April 15th, right? If you didn't have to pay any income taxes from the income you earned in 2018 until 2019, would the average American have any money left in his bank account to pay the tax? Not on your life. In fact, so the only reason the government is able to collect such confiscatory levels of taxation that dwarf anything imposed on the millionaires and billionaires, remember, you know, and I've made this point before, the original income tax was a soak the rich tax. The idea was to eliminate the tariffs that the middle class and the working class paid, and they were going to soak the rich with a 1% tax, or, you know, I think the top rate was 6%. Somebody talked about limiting it to 10%, but they said, no, we don't want it limited to 10%. Somebody might actually raise it up there. So they should have limited it at 6%, but they didn't. But the initial tax was at 6%, but it was soaked to rich. Well, now middle-class people are paying levels of tax that dwarf what was originally contemplated for the Carnegies, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers. So when you get the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens out there talking about soaking the rich, every time you pay your income tax, every time it's April 15th and you're filling out those tax returns, realize that you're the rich that got soaked, right? Because it backfired. You never want to get in bed with the government because you know what they are going to do to you. But in any event, 1943, we get the withholding tax. And by the way, not a lot of people know this little fact, but the withholding tax is actually a totally separate tax than the income tax. If you actually read the law, they imposed a brand new tax on wages. 
It's a wage tax. And you are allowed to take a credit of what you paid in the wage tax based on what you owe in the income tax. Right? And, and, and very few people notice this. I mean, I only know it because I learned it from my father. But the reason that it is a wage tax and not an income tax is because wages aren't income. Wait, wages are an exchange for labor. Wages, if anything, are a source of income. Because remember, income itself has to be defined by the courts because the 16th Amendment said Congress can tax income. Well, okay, what is income? It can't be whatever the government wants to claim it is because then the government would, able, would be able to expand its constitutional authority by changing the meaning of income. So income has to have a legal meaning so that the government can tax it because it's based on the, the 16th Amendment. And what the courts have said many, many times is basically income is a corporate profit. And if you go to the Internal Revenue Code and you look for the definition of income, you won't find it because it doesn't exist. But they do have a definition of gross income, but they don't have a definition of income. But of course, if you don't define income, then you really don't define gross income because you can't define a word by using the word. But in the definition of gross income, it actually lists things like fees, uh, commissions, stuff like that, which corporations can earn. There is no mention of wages in Section 61, which is the code section that defines gross income. And the reason it's not included is because corporations can't earn a wage, but they can earn a commission, they can earn a fee. So when they imposed the, the, the withholding tax, uh, it was a wage tax. And of course, again, the government back then, at least when we still abided by some of the laws, I mean, how can they impose an income tax on you when you don't know what your income is, right? Because you don't know what your income is in a given year until the year is over. So how could the government withhold taxes from your wages if it was an income tax when you don't even know if you have any income yet? And of course, back then, there was no such thing as capital gains or passive income, active income, wages and salaries, anything that came in. And anything that went out, you can deduct everything. So if you earn money you know, through your job as a wage earner, so let's say somebody earned $10,000 as a plumber, but then they lost $10,000 in the stock market, they had no income, so they paid no taxes. So if you were withholding the income tax based on your salary, but ignoring the losses in the stock market, the tax wouldn't be on income. So in order to have it be legal, they created a brand new tax. It's a flat rate tax on wages, right? And, and of course, it actually is unconstitutional because really it's a direct tax on wages, which are a source of income, not income itself, which has already been ruled unconstitutional by both Pollock before the 16th Amendment and Bershaber after the 16th Amendment. But I guess nobody noticed that. So, I, I mean, the whole thing is unconstitutional for a number of reasons. Of course, nobody cares. And I remember I, I started the podcast by talking about the fact that there's no law that requires you to pay income tax. There's no law that requires you to file a tax return. I think all that is true, but it's irrelevant because the government makes the laws. The government has the guns. They tell you what you have to do, regardless of what's in the law. We're no longer a nation of laws. We're a nation of men. We're a nation of very corrupt men. And this is a, a very dangerous path that we're on. But in any event, so the, uh, the wage tax was a separate tax. It's the Social Security tax that is basically a flat tax on wages. That's also a wage tax, and it's a flat tax, and it, it caps out. But the withholding tax applies to all of your wages. But whatever you pay in the withholding tax, you basically it's a credit 
against what you owe in the income tax. But the whole concept of taxing income has now been changed because the government now says, well, you have one, you have wages, you have rents, you have capital gains, and you can have you know, income in one area and not the other area. And that way you can end up without any income at all, but still owe an income tax, right? Which is like, wait a minute, how can I owe an income tax and not have any income? Well, that's another reason that the income tax in its current form is unconstitutional because Congress does not have the power just to tax your salary or just to tax your capital gains. They can only tax your income. That is what the the Constitution says. And so what is income? And income is a totality. When you're looking for your income for a given year, it should include uh, everything you earned and everything you lost, right? And then you, you, you net it out. And the other thing that Americans are paying now that they didn't pay uh, when the income tax was first enacted is the quarterly estimate, right? I mean, I, I, I file those estimated tax returns now. I mean, every quarter, right, your people, you're filing a return and you're estimating what your income tax is going to be for the year, even though you, you don't have all of your income. I mean, there was nothing in the original income tax law and there's nothing in the Constitution that says that Congress has the authority to force you to estimate your income and to pay a tax on what you think your income may be. No, the government is supposed to wait until you know exactly what your income is. And only after your income has been determined for the year can they constitutionally levy a tax on it. But of course, that's not what they do today. And if you raise any of these arguments, right, my dad would raise them and they say, oh, it's frivolous, you're a tax protester. Basically, if you're an American now, you're, you're, you're nothing but a sheep, right? You have to do whatever the government tells you, regardless of what the law says, regardless of what the constitutional says. If the government says, jump, you're supposed to say how high you know that's why i mean i just moved to puerto rico right that's how i am able to minimize the damage i am not fighting this battle because i recognize that it's a battle that i can't win i'm just trying to play within the new rules uh that the men who are in charge are saying that they're willing to honor for now so i am out here but you know all of this is very interesting and again if you want to really get to know the constitutional uh, history of the income tax and the law and, and, and why it's all illegal, right? Get a copy of my father's book, the, the Federal Mafia. I still have copies left of that book. And, you know, a bit of trivia, I've mentioned this before, but there are only two books in U.S. history that have ever been banned. One of them is Fanny Hill. And I forget when it was banned. It was a long, long time ago. And it was banned because it was pornographic. The other book that was banned is The Federal Mafia, written by my father. Now, the only difference is they didn't ban it totally. They banned my father from selling it. They basically said, you cannot sell this book, right? But that's, you know, the only time an author in U.S. history, other than uh, uh, Fannie Hill, the U.S. government has ever actually said that somebody could not sell a book. So it's, it, it's been banned. And so my father couldn't sell it. But that doesn't stop other people from selling it. I'm allowed to sell it, and and so I still have some copies. Now there are no there 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 are no new copies, right? I mean, I have copies that have never been read. They're still in a box, but there are no there's no new printings. There's no there ha, there have been no new uh, copies printed. Uh, I, I forget when it was. It's not less than 20 years, but the the copies are there. I think there were three or four editions of the Federal Mafia, but I still have them. You can get a copy of the Federal Mafia on my website, shiftbooks.com. 
so while supplies last, you can go on there. I think I sell them for $45 uh, a piece. And, and then you can really have a better appreciation of, of, of all the, 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 uh, the legal and constitutional um, aspects of, of the income tax. But again, I'm not advocating that anybody follow the advice in that book. As in my father's book, he tells you to stop filing and stop paying. I'm not advocating that at all. In fact, I'm, I'm advocating that you continue to file and you continue to pay. And if you don't want to pay a lot, then, then move here to Puerto Rico. There's plenty of room left on the island uh, for, for, for more people. But it's, it's good to read it just to understand right? Uh, the Constitution and the tax system and, 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 and where we've been and where we're going and to understand the, the, the criminal nature of the U.S. government and what, and what we're dealing with here uh, when we're dealing with the, the federal government. That's why my father called it the, the federal mafia, because they act like the mafia, right? The, the mafia just does what it wants using brute force. And that's basically what the IRS does. Now, while I'm on the subject of taxes, too, uh, Elizabeth Warren has got a new plan out there, right, that she wants to impose an additional 7% corporate income tax on any corporation that has more than 100 million in uh, in, in profits. And uh, so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, every time I turn around, you know, she's coming up with a new tax. I mean, how many different ways could she think of to tax the so-called rich? But one of the quotes that I had read is she was talking about how the corporations that have made the most money need to give the most back, right? Like here's corporations and they've taken a lot out. Or yeah, they. she said they've taken out the most from society, and therefore they should be required to put more back in. And this is a concept that the left really is exploiting and is completely wrong. The idea that profits represent some kind of extraction, right? That when you generate a profit, you have taken something away, right? Something was there and now you took it, right? I mean, that goes back to the Marxist idea of the surplus value of labor that whatever profits are being made is just being sucked away from the worker. Like the, 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 the entrepreneur is some kind of parasite and he's just living off the, the, the profits of the workers. Like the workers would have been able to make that money, but for the fact that they had a job. They had an employer who provided them with capital and it was their use of capital that allowed them to earn an even higher wage. And of course, the entrepreneur who organized the business and sacrificed and provided the capital is what enabled labor to earn more value. Because after all, workers always have a choice, right? You don't have to take a job. You can work for yourself. Right. And you can make whatever money you can. But if somebody comes along and offers you a job and you take it, that means that they're paying you more than you can earn yourself. So how have they sucked up any of your value? If you have given up self-employment to take a job, it's because the job that you've taken lets you make more than working on your own and getting 100 percent of the value of your labor. Because what people realize is, wait a minute, if I sell my labor to an employer, I can get more than my labor's worth, right? If I just labor as a self-employed individual, let's say I can make $10 an hour. But if I sell my labor to an entrepreneur who has capital and know-how and other connections that I don't have, I can actually get $15 an hour selling my labor. Now, if that guy turns around and earns $20 an hour off of that $15 expense, did he take that $5 away from the worker? No. On his own, the worker was only earning $10. He was only able to earn $15 because he got a job with the employer. The fact that the employer earned an extra 5 
is profit that was earned by the business. It wasn't taken away from the worker. The worker got more money because he got employed. But the other aspect about profits representing some kind of extraction, like, like, like somehow there's a company out there that's making a lot of money and it, it took that money away from somebody. Profit isn't taken from anything. Profit is created out of nothing. Profit represents the value that a business adds to the economy, right? So if you're basically measuring what's been added in, right, nothing's been taken out. Profit is additive to the economy. So if a business made a lot of profit, it took nothing out. And if it took nothing out, what obligation does it have to put something back in? It hasn't taken anything out that needs to be put back in, right? It is all about adding value. If I am a business and I take land, labor, and capital that on their own, let's say I take $10 worth of land, $10 worth of labor, and I borrow $10 worth of capital, right? I take $30 worth of inputs, and I'm able to generate $50 worth of economic value because I combine them in the right way. That extra $20 that I created added to economic output. I didn't subtract anything. I created value. And I shared that value with my customers. You know, generally, if you go and add up all the economic value that is derived by all of the various stakeholders of businesses, not just their employees, but their customers or, you know, uh, local governments, ever, all, all the various stakeholders that benefit from the activity of a business. Collectively, everybody else benefits far more than the owner. The profit that the entrepreneur is able to earn is always smaller than the collective gains of society. Now, the, the entrepreneur, the business owner will make more money than any one individual member of society. But if you add it all up, I mean, take, take uh, you know, Bill Gates and he comes up with uh, uh, Microsoft. You know, yes, he made a lot of money, billions of dollars. But think about how much value all of the businesses and all the human beings collectively earned based on that computer software, right? Or, you know, whatever, you know, um, Thomas Edison invents electric, you know, electric light bulb. How much did he make? I don't know how much he made. I'm sure he made a lot of money. But the money that Thomas Edison made pales in comparison to the benefits society enjoyed because they had electricity, because we weren't using candles or, you know, uh, Henry Ford made a lot of money. He didn't invent the automobile, but he invented mass production. He was able to bring down the price of the Model T. He made a lot of money, but the people who bought those cars who otherwise had no transportation at all or had horses, they benefited a lot more. And it wasn't just automobile because the production line, the assembly line, began to be used in the production process worldwide. So think of all the things that are mass produced now, right, all because of the, the pioneering work done by Henry Ford, he didn't get any of those benefits, right? He only got the benefits of the cars that he built. But look at all the other consumer goods that were created at lower prices that 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 caused living standards to go up uh, by uh, so many so many people around the world. So what Henry Ford earned himself pales in comparison to the value he created for society. So he didn't take anything out. Now, sure, did Henry Ford, yeah, they get, you know, Ford Foundation. I mean, all these guys that made a lot of money, they're some of the biggest charitable givers. The biggest philanthropists in history have been the people who have earned the most money. But that's just extra giving. 
They're not giving anything back. They're giving extra. They, they didn't take anything out when they made a profit. They contributed to society. And then by taking part of their profits and donating to charitable causes, they contributed extra. You know, what you never hear from the left, right, from the socialists of the world or the Democrats, they never ask the people on welfare to give back. I mean, who really needs to give back? The people who are taking out, right? So if you are not working and you're collecting a welfare check, you're collecting subsidized housing, you're collecting Medicare, you are taking from society. You are getting things that you did not earn, right? Now, those are the people who should be giving back, right? No, but you're never going to hear anybody on the left say, hey, somebody who's on welfare should give back, right? Well, that's politically correct. How dare you ask those people to give back? People who are taking and giving nothing to society, they should, they should give back? But no. Let's take the most productive members of society, the most successful members of society, the ones who have done the most, who have contributed the most to raising the living standards of everybody in the country. And let's ask those people to give back. Come on. Anyway, let me change the subject and go back a little bit to the markets today. Nothing really big happening in the stock market today. I think a lot of the action was in the gold market. The price of gold got hit pretty hard this morning. I think it was around 8.30 or a little before 8.30. Uh, even before, I think, we got the industrial production numbers that came out. And these were weak numbers. I mean, this would have helped the price of gold, I think. I mean, the uh, February industrial production number was just 0.1. And they were expecting a slight increase that, oh, in March, we were going to get a gain of 0.3. Instead, we were minus 0.1. So not only didn't we improve, we actually went into the negative. And if you look at the manufacturing number, uh, the prior month was reported as minus 0.4. And we did revise that to minus 0.3. But instead of rebounding a positive 0.3 in March, which is what everybody expected, it was unchanged. No rebound whatsoever. So a weaker number. And uh, capacity utilization, that was at 79 in the prior month. And instead of improving to 79.1, it was reported down to 78.8. Although actually, when I look at that number, the original estimate for February capacity utilization was 78.2. So they did revise that up to 79. So all in all, that one might be a push. But the other two, production and manufacturing numbers, were certainly weak economic numbers, confirming that the economy is weakening. And so that normally would have been, I think, bullish for the price of gold. But there was this huge sell order that hit the market before that number came out. And I think it so shocked the markets that the markets really didn't react to that weaker economic number. And in fact, you know, you had Larry Kudlow, who was out, I think it was just at the end of last week. And, and Cudlow now, you know, looking at the economic data, he came out and he made the statement that he doesn't expect any more rate hikes in his lifetime, in his lifetime. Now, I mean, Larry Cudlow is an older guy, but I mean, his life expectancy is, uh, you know, probably at least a decade, if not more. And Cudlow does not believe there'll be any more rate hikes in his lifetime. And, you know, I don't think he's right. I do think that a rate hike is coming but not for the reasons that Cudlow might expect, right? Because I think the reason that he thinks there's going to be no more rate hikes is because he knows that the economy is not going to be growing. We're going into recession. And he knows that we can't afford any rate hikes because 
the debt is that big. I mean, that's why Donald Trump is calling for more quantitative easing, right? I mean, how could Donald Trump be saying, on the one hand, we have the greatest economy in the history of the world. On the other hand, we need the same emergency monetary policy that we needed in the depths of the Great Recession, right? I mean, that doesn't make sense. We have the greatest economy, but we need emergency quantitative easing. Well, the reason it makes sense is because Trump knows we don't have a great economy. He knows we have a great bubble. He knew we had a bubble as a candidate. He criticized the Fed for doing quantitative easing, for inflating the bubble. But now that he owns the bubble, he needs the Fed to do more QE to keep it from popping before the next election. And I think Larry Kudlow uh, knows that the Fed's not going to be able to raise rates uh, because the economy is weakening. And so and we and we can't afford higher rates. All of this stuff, though, all this talk should be making the price of gold go up. Instead, gold basically hit the lowest price of the year today. And in fact, we're now down. Gold is now slightly lower for 2019 as a result of today's decline. We're now at, I think, 1276, 1277 uh, per ounce of gold. But what, of course, all of these people who just assume we're not going to have any more rate hikes, what they don't understand is we're going to have rate hikes, but not because of economic growth, right? And of course, you know, Steve Moore, one of the big things that Steve Moore has been saying, you know, as he's, you know, you know, on television and, you know, he's being considered now for the Fed is that he wants to educate the Fed to get them to understand that growth does not cause inflation and they don't have to be worried about a growing economy causing inflation. And so they don't have to raise interest rates due to economic growth. And and Steve Moore is 100 percent right about that. Growth doesn't cause inflation. The Fed does. How does the Fed cause inflation? Prints money, quantitative easing. So the Fed has caused a lot of inflation. Growth doesn't cause inflation. The Fed does. Money printing does. So we have a lot of inflation. The Fed should be raising interest rates right now. They should be shrinking uh, their balance sheet, but they're not. Growth, and Steve Moore points this out, when you have a growing economy, you produce more stuff. And producing more stuff keeps the price down. But when you have a bubble economy and you're running massive trade deficits, you're not producing more stuff. You're just importing stuff and you're printing money to pay for it. And a lot of the inflation right now, and I put up a, an article uh, to this. I, was, I, I read it initially on Zero Hedge. I forget the, the, the website that, that put it up, but I posted it on my Facebook page. But he pointed out that everybody says there's no inflation and there's inflation everywhere. I mean, it's all in the financial markets. It's in stocks. It's in real estate. It's in bonds. That's where a lot of the cheap money has gone. All of our trade deficits, right? When we buy products, they send the products to us and we send them dollars. What do they do with their dollars? They don't buy our products, so they buy our stocks. They buy our bonds. So the, the money is going into the financial assets, bidding up those prices instead of bidding up consumer good prices. But of course... The CPI uh, is masking uh, what is probably a significant uh, inflation already taking place in the cost of living. I mean, if you look at just things like rents or healthcare costs or tuition or a lot of things that aren't being adjusted hedonically, you can see the price rising, you know, consistently and far more than the two percent a year. It's all because the government is able to pretend that prices are falling because they can point to some improvement in quality that may not actually mean much to the consumer who actually has to pay the higher price. Uh, you know, there is a huge inflation threat. And of course, that's the one thing that nobody seems to be worried about. Everybody is convinced that there's no inflation. That's why everybody can be so sanguine on rates. See, the Fed can only keep rates low so long as there's no inflation threat. So that's why initially they're saying, okay, well, it's we're okay with inflation of more than 2%. 
we're okay if it's symmetrical. So it used to be 1.7. So now I guess 2.3 is okay. The reason they keep lowering the bar is because they can't do anything about it. They have to keep pretending that inflation is not a threat because if they ever admit it's a threat, what are they going to do? Nothing. They can't raise interest rates. That is the problem. The reason they had to stop raising interest rates, the reason Larry Kudlow is so confident that we're never going to have another rate hike is because he knows the whole economy would implode. If the Fed actually had to bring interest rates up to 4%, 5%, 6%, which is historically kind of where they've been, everything would collapse. But what happens if inflation gets to 4 or 5%? The Fed's got to raise interest rates higher than that to try to combat it. But it's impossible to do that. So why I believe Cudlow is wrong, why I think the Fed is ultimately going to raise rates is because they're going to have no choice. It's going to be because inflation is skyrocketing and we're in recession. We're going to have stagflation. But the Fed is going to have to raise rates in order to pretend or protect the dollar in order to prevent high inflation from becoming runaway or hyperinflation. That is what the, the choice that the Fed is going to have to make, hopefully for our nation's sake, uh, they choose uh, 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 to raise rates and allow the bubble to implode, allow the collapse to happen. Of course, because they've you know refrained from doing that for so long in order to enable you know the can kicking, you know the bubble has gotten that much bigger, the imbalances of the economy have gotten that much bigger, and we're going to get that much more of a painful uh, resolution. But of course. Every time they make the problems bigger by kicking the can down the road, there's more political motivation to kick it again, you know, because the worse the problems are, the more painful is the resolution. And of course, nobody wants to be blamed. Nobody wants to be the messenger that gets shot full of holes because they deliver the bad news or the bad news happens on their watch. But, you know, the bad news for Trump and for, you know, uh, people that like capitalism or Republicans is that it doesn't even matter at this point. Right. I mean, because either the collapse is going to happen before the next election or maybe it'll happen after. I think the odds are before, but it could happen after. But either way, Trump's president. So either way, capitalism is going to get to blame and socialism is going to be the solution that everybody grasps for. But getting back to the, the movement in gold, I mean, one of the things I think that that, that hurt gold a little bit last week, too, uh, was another big drop in unemployment claims. In fact, claims, first-time unemployment claims, dropped again to another new low. I forget the number, but it was the lowest since sometime in 1969. And again, you know, according to these statistics, we have really low inflation and really low unemployment, and hardly anybody is filing unemployment claims. And again, you know, what meets the eye, these statistics are not all they're trumped up to be. And of course, Donald Trump, again, was a big critic of the unemployment numbers, the fake numbers uh, that were, you know, fake under Obama, but somehow they're genuine now. But on these, you know, weekly unemployment claims, there is no way that the labor market is really as strong as these unemployment claims would suggest. First of all, Wages are barely moving up. In fact, adjusted for inflation, they're falling. So if the labor market was really this tight, if there really was a lack of supply of workers, supply and demand tells you that wages would be bidding up, right? I mean, employers would have to bid for labor. They would have to raise uh, wages to try to encourage more people to come into the workforce that are not working, and they would be bidding against each other for this scarce supply of, uh, of workers. The fact that wages are barely moving up shows you that we don't have a labor market that's nearly as strong as 
this statistic would show. You know, just like the inflation rate is not really capturing all the price increases, I don't think these weekly unemployment numbers are really giving you a, an accurate picture of what's going on. And there's a few other reasons for this. One is that there are a lot of people now that are working in jobs where they no, no longer qualify for unemployment if they give those jobs up or if they lose those jobs, right? I mean, if you are an Uber driver, you are not going to be able to get unemployment. I mean, I mean, first of all, I don't know how many people actually get fired from Uber, right? But all the guys working from Uber, they are um, uh, independent contractors. And a lot of them only work part-time. And either of those would disqualify you from being able to collect unemployment. So in this gig economy where you have a lot of people who are self-employed, right, or they're working part-time, they're freelancing, or maybe they have a temporary job, none of these people are eligible for unemployment. Even if they lose their job, they can't, they can't submit any claims. And, and so that is probably one of the reasons that you've had a big downturn in the number of people filing unemployment claims is because not as many people who are working are eligible to file claims if they lose their job or if, you know, their their hours are cut back or whatever. So th I think that is skewing the statistics quite a bit. But also, I have always been suspicious of the monthly jobs numbers, right, that the government reports about all these new jobs that are being created um, every month. And, you know, part of the, the number comes from this birth death model, right? Where the government is assuming that every month a certain number of businesses are formed and those businesses are hiring people and they don't really know how many people, but they're just kind of making a guess, right? So not all the jobs that they report, they don't actually have proof that the jobs were actually created, but, but they think they were. And maybe the fact that the uh, weekly claims are so low, maybe that is an indication that the government is overestimating the number of jobs that are being created by new businesses. First of all, a lot of new businesses fail, right? I mean, most new businesses fail. That's why starting a business is so risky, right? That's why if you make a profit, you should be rewarded because you took a big risk to make that profit. Well, what happens when a business fails? They lay off their workers, right? Because they failed. So if a lot of businesses are being formed, then a lot of businesses would be shutting down and you'd have a lot of people getting fired. You'd have more turnover in the market. Well, where is that? We're not showing that. If we're having unemployment claims at 50-year lows, maybe that means that not that many businesses are starting up. They're not hiring people, so they don't have to fire them, which also brings me to another point. If a lot of businesses are hiring people, right, if we're creating all these jobs, we would be firing more workers, right, because not everybody that gets hired um, works out, right? Some people get a job and six months later, a year later, they get fired, right? Because employers don't know. They hire people. They're a bit of an unknown quantity. And so they take a job and after a while, they evaluate uh, their work. And, you know, it's, 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 it, they're not that, doing that good a job. And so I fire somebody and hire somebody else. And so there's always going to be this kind of churn going on in an economy. People are getting fired, then they're getting other jobs, right? And of course, some people quit and get other jobs, but you're going to get another people that are getting fired. Well, again, the fact that so few people are getting fired could mean that fewer people are actually being hired than what the government is claiming. And that makes sense to me, because given everything that you can observe in the economy, it doesn't make sense that the uh, labor market is really as strong 
as the statistics would have you believe and as anyone who is trying to focus on the statistics and get you to buy into those statistics would have you believe. Just like I don't think the inflation rate is as low as the government claims because they're hiding behind statistics that have been designed to uh, you know, understate inflation. The, the employment statistics, the unemployment claims, again, are government statistics that have been manufactured by government and they don't tell the whole story. But a lot of people have a vested interest in believing the story. Certainly all the people on Wall Street that are bullish and permabulls and want to pretend that we've got the greatest economy ever. And so the stock market can keep going up forever and interest rates can stay low forever and everything's going to be great. Right? They have a vested interest in believing all this nonsense and they never want to dig beneath the surface because probably because they're afraid of what they'll find. And so they'd rather remain you know, willfully blind. Thank you.